0: wild, and Ashley is not with me today because we are doing an episode interviewing Corbin Richards and Samantha Mason, who are the two women who helped unionize, who actually did unionize, they didn't help do it, they did it, Um, they unionized Gimme Coffee in Ithaca, New York, so welcome, Samantha and Corbin, how are you?
1: Thank you so much, um, Doing well.
2: This is Sam. Happy International Women's Day. And this is Corbin. Also, happy International Women's Day. And thanks for having us.
0: That's right. It's International Women's Day. That's so cool that we got to uh, chat on this very special day. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. And I have been wanting this episode for a long time. So, Ashley and I will do these like brainstorm sessions where we're like, you know, where are we going? What are we doing? Who's next to interview? What do we want to talk about? And like, the baristas unionized at Gimme has been like at the top of my list. And I was so excited, Sam, when you just reached out to me via email and was like, hey, just so you know, we unionized over here. Do you want to talk about it? (laughs) So here we are. Um, Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm so very excited. So let's get right into it, Sam. Like, what's your uh, what's your background story? How long have you worked at Gimme? Um, where did you come from?
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am originally from Los Angeles, California, and I moved to Ithaca in 2010 to go to school for documentary film. I basically fell in love with the Ithaca community during my time here uh, at college, and knew I was gonna be here, uh, I think, for my lifetime. Uh, I'm really passionate about this community uh, and improving it. And um, I've always had a hospitality job since I was 13. Um, I've worked in restaurants and, you know, it's, um, gimme sort of happened through meeting other workers in the hospitality industry and, you know, them encouraging me to apply there and, the shop specifically that I work at um, on Cayuga Street is a very neighborhood-friendly shop and a very community-oriented space. I built so many great authentic relationships there and uh, with the customers, with my coworkers. So I I never, I don't actually drink much coffee. I drink decaf uh, and tea. <laughs> so the coffee aspect of the job is not really my main passion, but um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's badass. <laughs> drinking. I don't drink decaf, but I just advocate for workers' rights. No big deal. <laughs> or you do drink decaf. Yeah.
1: I do drink. Our decaf espresso and our decaf brew is pretty incredible. Um, so I basically can have any drink, you know, like a latte or cappuccino, despite not drinking coffee. So,
0: <laughs> Does your decaf use the Swiss water process or the sugar process or what you got?
1: I think it so this is Corbin. I think it's the sugar process. Yeah, the sugar process. Mm. That's a great question that I'm not going to confirm we know the answer to. <laughs> but yeah. We
0: use the sugar process at at uh, Ritual as well. And it's so sweet. It tastes like cherries or banana bread. Mm. or It's mm-hmm. delicious. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. What about you, Corbin? Where'd you come from?
2: Yeah, so I'm originally from Kansas City, Kansas. Um, and then I moved to the northeast for college. Um, I went uh, to college in Connecticut and then after that I was just kind of like you know what I don't know what I want to do with my life and (laughs) that's okay. Um, So I decided to move um, to a place I'd never been and do something I've never done. So I came to Ithaca um, in the fall of 2015 and applied to be a barista because, uh, basically coffee is responsible for getting me through college and (laughs) I love it. And gimme hired me and I worked at, um, the location on Cornell's campus in their computer science building, which was super fun. You get to see robots and stuff and meet cool people. Um, and then about after a year, um, I became their LB, which again, like I just Loved that, teaching people, learning more about quality um, and the actual processing of coffee. But unfortunately, about after that year, I have a chronic illness and it was really kind of getting in the way of my job. Um, So I had to step down and then ultimately, like within the last few months, I actually left my position as a barista. Um, So I am no longer technically in the coffee industry, but I still drink a lot of coffee <laughs> so that's about it
0: wow okay so you've worked there for how, how long have each one of you worked there I know Corbin you just said that you don't work there now but how long had you worked there?
2: it was about two and a half years so August would have been my three-year anniversary at
1: give me yeah and I, I've been working there uh, over three and a half years
0: so that sounds like you two have had a lot of experience in hospitality and in coffee. Had any of you ever worked for a union before? And why did you want to unionize Gimme?
1: Corbin and I have, I, I believe we both have no union experience. No, we've, I've never worked for a union. Um, I also <laughs> did not really know what a union was until we organized. So that's what's, I think, people in our generation it's very rare for us to organize a union, um, in the workplace during this time. A lot of, a lot of workers, if they're in a union, they've inherited the union from, from the past, from those labor movements back in the 1920s. Um, so yeah, no, no union experience. It's all sort of, that's what's, I think, so beautiful about this is that, we're coming at it with such open minds and open hearts um, and sort of creating uh, and
2: and totally reimagining what unions are. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Yeah. So like exactly what Sam said, I had no idea what unions were when she called me in April asking if I wanted to help organize. My first thought was like, I don't know anything about unions except conservatives don't like them and that my mom's dad was a lineman and he was in a union. Um, so I was like, sure, let's learn more about this. And um, basically our reaction was an across the board reaction. Like um, our entire workforce is basically millennial age, um, even a little bit younger. And this was their instruction to unions as well.
0: So did something happen that made you want to look into this? Like, how did it start for you?
2: (sighs) Yeah, you know,
1: it's really hard to, I was battling sort of loving my job, but still seeing these repetitive problems happen year after year, season after season at the coffee shop, taking these problems to management Uh, You know, they have an open-door policy. You can, you know, take issues to them individually, but, you know, they have no obligation to do anything about them. Yes, they'll listen to you, uh, but a couple weeks later, nothing's changed, and it's, you know, the problems continue to exist. You know, the system sort of, we kind of have accepted the way things are. And a lot of people are feeling helpless and powerless at their workplace. <laughs> there was, you know, something that happened to me on April 1st of last year that um, was sort of the catalyst to me <laughs> wanting to stay at my job, but, but wanting to do something about the problems there because I couldn't continue working there <sighs> um, under those, you know, unjust conditions. So I went to the worker center in our community. And everything changed from there.
2: Yeah. And so that's when Sam started calling people and she called me quickly after going to the worker center. And, uh, you know, it was sort of a situation where the baristas, especially Sam, and there was one other person who went to the worker center with her, you know, they had a choice. Um, One was to go right for management personally kind of calling them out. Um, We call that shaming power. You know, giving Sam and this other barista a lot of credit, they knew that when you shame power, it doesn't actually bring sustainable change. It just kind of feels good in the moment. You know, you get to call people out, but it doesn't change the structure. It doesn't change the environment that enables these problems. And so they went after organizing instead, which will directly go to the structure. It doesn't matter who is your manager. It's not personal. Again, it's all about um, how the hospitality industry is built to make a profit and that in the process of making a profit, you sacrifice a lot of the well-being of the workers. I
0: want to talk a little bit about what, unions
2: do? So unions uh, were created to address the needs and interests of workers and then served as the tool to fight for those needs and interests. And once you form a union, which can happen in a couple of ways, um, you have some legal protection and benefits. Uh, so one thing that a union can do is is um, file something that's called a grievance and then arbitrate on behalf of a worker. So if you have a problem at work or if you disagree maybe with a warning or a disciplinary action, um, you can go to the union and say, hey, I don't think this was in just cause, um, and I would like to grieve this. And the union then will file some papers for you. They will even contact management and be like, we would like to discuss the recent warning that, you know, Jane Doe got um, last week and we would like to remedy this. And so it encourages a discussion around disciplinary action, which usually is a one way street in the workplace. Um, and so this base, this gives uh, the worker back their voice and their autonomy to challenge um, an authority figure Unions can also provide lost time because ultimately a union, like when I say this time, I mean like the actual like people, like the president of the union, the regional joint boards, they want to help unorganized workers organize. So if you are someone in a union, um, you might be able to get lost time from the union if you want to go help organize maybe a neighboring factory or a cafe or something, which is Really sweet, uh, because most of the people who work in our industry can't really afford to take time off of work um, to do much of anything, and so the fact that the union will actively help you financially to um pursue uh the movement like I think that's awesome. Um, The union provides legal advice um, for pretty much anything that happens. Um, If you're curious, like, hey, is this something that I can grieve or possibly even sue for? What do you think? Or, you know, it's just a really great resource. But I would have to say that the biggest perk and the most powerful thing that unions do is collective bargaining. And collective bargaining is a process where workers will talk with management and make their contract together. And it's, um, you know, this big process um, of constant negotiating. And even though a union can't promise anything specific through collective bargaining, like you can't say, oh, if you form a union, you will get higher wages. You can't say that because you don't know. But the point is, is that you now have um, a legally protected process to go to your managers and say, we want higher pay, we want just cause, we want sick days. And depending on the management team and your negotiations team, you can potentially achieve all those things. And for us personally, some of our biggest wins were pure just cause and getting sick days. And we also did get higher wages.
1: Yeah, and I just want to mention that, you know, one of the things Corbin and I, the pattern we saw in negotiating throughout those seven, eight months was that when we used collective sort of, what would you call them, collective ways of uh, asking for, demanding things in for our contract. Um, for example, we brought, you know, 13 baristas up to headquarters, all in our union shirts, wearing union buttons. When we were trying to get the company to agree to pure just cause in our contract. And it worked because the next week they gave in. Um, we had a lot of collective letter signings where all the baristas would sign letters. You know, it's it it it's definitely like the the power is in the numbers of people.
0: Can you define really quickly what just cause is and why that was important to you?
2: <laughs> totally. Yes. So Just cause means that if you are employed and something happens to you, you're disciplined or terminated, just cause means that basically you have to be terminated for just cause. You can't be terminated because you wore something your manager didn't like, or maybe there's a personality class. That is an example of non-just cause or The opposite of just cause is something that we call at-will. And technically, all unorganized workers are at-will employees. Um, So you can be fired for anything, Um, as long as, obviously, I mean, like you have federal entities that protect people from being discriminated against, but there's also loopholes everywhere. And you have to still, you know, legally... um, the ADA or the EOC, you have to have so much proof that you were fired because of a disability or because of the color of your skin or your gender. And so just cause is a way of protecting people um, and kind of like planting some conscious, (laughs) um, a conscious process into the minds of management where they have to ask themselves before they discipline someone like, Hmm, if a neutral third party were to see what I'm doing, would they say I'm doing it for just cause? Um, and so that's what that is. And it's honestly like the most important thing, at least in our minds, um, to take back to the people. Cause you shouldn't forfeit, um, your right to challenge authority, your right to, um, like basically, um, appeal at work just because you enter a, um, or you cross through a door frame because that's what happens is you forfeit those rights at the workplace.
0: You said that when if you have a grievance against management, if you're unionized, you can go to your union and they can it, is it mediate? or I'm, I think I'm having trouble. It, it sounds like it's one step underneath legal action. So what's the incentive for management to solve it? within the union? Is it just for fear of a lawsuit?
2: Yeah. So basically, so technically speaking, if management always acts within just cause, they should never be afraid of arbitration. (laughs) The only thing that will happen is they'll have to negotiate with the union how to pay for it. So it is in their financial interest to resolve problems before you have to hire an arbitrator. And you can get an arbitrator in a few different ways. There's like a federal um, arbitration board Mm -hmm. uh, or something, Mm -hmm. or you can even get someone in your community who's a neutral party. It's up to the, uh, to the union and management to decide Mm -hmm. who they would like to see. But yeah, basically, I mean, there's a lot of incentives for management to want to resolve something before it gets to that stage. You know, by no means are you obligated if you're in an arbitration process to confidentiality, Um, You know, we are so big on um, this theory of making the private public um, Mm -hmm. because we've run up against a lot of situations where the reason that someone or a worker did not feel comfortable talking about something that could have been grieved is because they felt it was either inappropriate to talk about it with other people, um, they didn't want to... Um, give up maybe a certain manager's identity, so they were sort of protecting the personal they were protecting the private Um, but then they sacrificed their own rights and a lot of time health or money or whatever they're fighting for to Save face for some people who are taking advantage of that.
1: You know, I started a trend of sharing my performance review with all of my coworkers. Sort of, you know, capitalism tends to isolate workers, but once you start sharing with people, with your coworkers, everything that's going on at the workplace, you just realize that you're not alone and you are literally not alone. <laughs> and that is, there's so much power within that because it does sort of help workers with their fear. It, it, that's how you get past fear is by, is by sharing and talking with your coworkers in a safe space and building that solidarity.
0: What, what else, like, what do you think that does a union have like a goal in mind or does it have like a mission statement? How do you, how do you structure it in like a value sense?
2: It's important to to know that, um, like we, we tell ourselves not all unions are created equal. Um, you kind of have two factors at play the actual union itself. Um, so what is that? That is the union that pays for everything. It collects your dues. It's the actual institution and then you have the union that is made up of the actual workers or the bargaining unit, which is the union lingo for the workers. We began this process very consciously wanting to, you know, establish a very clear vision of what our values are as a union. And those values are creativity, transparency, and collaboration. And we stand by those today you know, we're not interested in the actual power of the union going beyond the workers. Um, And you see examples of this, I think, in instances where people have inherited unions. As unions grow, sometimes, and this is really sad, they tend to mimic the power structures that they actually set out to dismantle. That's right. And so we are very conscious of this um, and actively trying to combat The structure that they mimic, which is hierarchy. Um, So in our union, we don't have a president. We don't have anyone who has more power than anyone else. Um, We are careful to make decisions where we ask ourselves okay, is this empowering for everyone? Does this keep everyone's dignity in mind? Um, Have we included everyone? into the discussion or at least open the door for people to come in and talk about something. We are okay with disagreement. We actually encourage disagreement because, you know, that's the only way that issues can be brought forward that maybe you in your own mind would have never thought of. And so we try to encourage a network of power or a network um, of solidarity. Because again, you know, once you mimic power structures that have oppressed you, it's probably going to lead you doing the same thing to someone else
1: yeah it's and it's been it's been kind of hard you know because we live in a culture where we're constantly told what to do and we're controlled at the workplace so like there's a lot of like there's a lack of confidence in workers Mm -hmm. in terms of them having ideas that are worth talking about and like it's it's been really cool to see Um, people come out of their shells and, and, oh, if I can only, God, it's just like, I can't describe how much, uh, inspiration it, it provides and it, and joy it brings me to see workers reclaim their own power within themselves.
0: One of the things that was so interesting that you, uh, have written in your union vision is the collective managerial reviews. Can you talk about that a little <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> Totally.
1: I mean, yeah. that's definitely, I mean, I'm sorry, but <laughs> if, if we are being, you know, held accountable for and reviewed, there is, we totally have a right to, it's like a two, it should be a two-way relationship between workers and managers there to review our managers back. Do you want to talk more about that?
2: So, you know, what Sam just provided an example of is um, what I would call, like, a paternalistic relationship Mm -hmm. with management. Like, could you imagine as a kid, like, sitting your parents down and being like, okay, so... you guys have me do all these chores and then get on my butt when I don't do them. So I'm going to get on you guys now about how you also sometimes do the same things that you're punishing me for. Um, like I know that if I tried that with my parents, they would have just laughed. So And so it really brought to light the nature of our relationship and how you know, even though we say, like, oh, we're a family and we love each other, if you really look at that model, that means that there's an authority figure and that everyone else is, in essence, a child. And we, in within a nuclear or paternalistic model, children are expected to be compliant, to be obedient and loyal, and a lot of the time, silent. That's right. Um, And so taking that relationship and being like, "Mm, no, we're actually adults. Um, and I want you to treat me like an adult and I'm going to treat you like an adult that demands that management, um, see you as an equal. And, um, they they have to be able to accept that you can disagree with them and they can't punish you for it or retaliate against you. They have to respect your opinion. They have to respect, um, your viewpoints because again that is what an adult to an adult relationship is
1: one other thing i want to mention is that you don't have to have a union to self organize and to collectively act at work Th- that in and of itself like as we saw with the west virginia teachers who were just all on strike for the last you know 9 days they acted they yes they were they had they were unionized you know but <laughs> They did not. The union was not helpful. Um, they did this themselves um, in terms of just acting. And it's like, what are what are the people in power going to do? Fire them all? No. Like, it's it's so important, like, to emphasize how powerful collective action is. And I think again, it's that's where the fear dissipates is when you collectively act with your co-workers it ha you have to get people on board <laughs> and it's just it's incredible it's so it's so what's the word contagious like I just it's like it's almost like the key to to life I'm like this is just <laughs> what I want to dedicate my life to is waking people up to this power and mm-hmm. you know? So
0: So I wanna mention I just uh I wanna read this quote that really brings like to light the, the strike point point of it all. And you were talking about the um the teachers in West mm-hmm. Virginia who just uh they their strike is finally broken, they're all gonna get pay raises, it's amazing. Um so I just started to I joined my Democratic Socialists of America chapter here in San Francisco. And I was emailing um one of the labor organizers. His name is Evan McLaughlin, and we were talking about what like what's the value argument for for unionizing and what does it mean in a society that's capitalistic and how do we change the structure to be a more socialistic um culture? Mm-hmm. So he says as socialists, we believe in systemic change that goes beyond any one specific workplace. We think that one of the most effective ways to change society is to organize resistance where capital, re- capitalism reproduces itself, where the conflict between working class and rich is most direct, and where we can actually interpret that process of reproduction. Put it more plainly, if we organize to the point where we can strike and actually stop production, that allows us to wield far more power than we would have protesting, appealing to elected official officials, or running candidates for office.
1: This is... This is ex- I mean, it's like this is how you <laughs> link up like the environmental movement with the labor movement, because mm-hmm. once you organize workers, you can't you have power over stopping the production. Mm-hmm. It feels so good and purposeful and meaningful, too. I mean, it's like I feel like we were put on this planet to 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 you know, do things like this to, (laughs) to create community and to bring out the best in each other and to, you know, (laughs) well, yeah.
2: Yeah. And like going off what Sam just said, I mean, in my mind, it's plain and simple what you do with the space, um, that either you've created for yourself or your privilege. And that is to pave way for people, who are still fighting for their rights and their privilege, and you're there to protect them. Sam and I currently are involved um, in a larger hospitality project. Like Even though I've left a gimme, I am now dedicating almost all of my time to talking with other workers at restaurants and cafes and helping them organize. Because I see it as my personal duty to help people who are even at more toxic workplaces or are definitely... Um, less privileged than I am, and to kind of form a ring where they can safely talk about these things um, and let them know that there are so many people that have their back.
0: That's so interesting. You talk about like trying to organize people with less privilege. And I think kind of going back to what we were talking about in the beginning, where sometimes when, when people that are in unions already have some amount of privilege, they end up leveraging that to keep other marginalized people out um and I think that just by just by having a union organizing workers it doesn't really make it inherently radical or progressive or anything like that I mean this movement that you're talking about and that you are building it will fail if we don't put marginalization marginalized (laughs) voices forward that's correct and this like leaves us with a central problem that the people we need to lead the labor movement are the people that are most at risk for retaliation for workplace action. And this means that we need to put even more emphasis on organizing the entire workplace so that those with less privilege are less likely to be at risk of being singled out and targeted.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Sam and I definitely have had our moments of like despondency and being like, oh my god, like this, this system uh, the like the kiriarchy is just so powerful and it's so huge. Um, and the most evil thing it does is it is so good at infiltrating even initiatives and projects that were created with good intentions. Um, and that's something that we're just trying to be very vigilant about. Um, and we invite criticism, we invite um, opposition because sometimes that's what it takes for us to be aware of how maybe how we're perpetuating systems of power and blocking out other voices um with even without even knowing it
0: what was it like give me a breakdown of these last few months like what were the steps how how did you organize with workers take me through it
2: our unionization process was unusually fast and so basically once uh Sam suggested that, hey, let's unionize pretty much within, let's see, that was in April, um, and we immediately started our campaign. And one thing that made this easier and much faster possibly than a lot of other workplaces is that Sam herself um, like had a lot of personal relationships with the staff because she's been here for over three years. Um, it's a relatively small community. There's never more than 30 baristas. And so we were able to talk to everyone one-on-one, even up to multiple times a week. And so basically, once we built those relationships, we talked with everyone, we signed union cards, which is one way to win recognition in a union, but your employer has to voluntarily recognize it. Um, They have to be like, oh, okay, there's a majority, so y'all can have a union. Um, Our employer did not do that. So we went to the um, NLRB, uh, the National Labor Relations Board, and filed for an election. And so the election happened on May 31st. Um, We had 94% uh, yes for forming a union um, and a pretty high turnout, 16 out of, I think, 20. 12, seventeen. Sorry, seventeen. Oh yeah, seventeen out of twenty-two came out, which is, um, even though there's not many of us, like that's a very high turnout rate for an, a union election, um, and I, we think that is because you know again this we made this um, we put a lot of emphasis on building personal relationships. Um, we may put an emphasis on being involved with our community, specifically with the Worker Center um, and talking to people there. And also the the person, our union representative, Richard Bensinger, um, really encouraged and supported everything that we were doing and volunteered to meet with people whenever. I mean, he's very dedicated to <laughs> workers' he's rights. He's so to,
1: dedicated. Yeah,
2: he's, he's like dedicated almost to like – a like an unhealthy degree. Like he'll drive on a moment's notice from around the DC area up to Ithaca to meet with a worker. Like, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. He's an amazing human being. Um, And so are the people at the worker center. Uh, They work night and day to make sure that we can do what we did. So basically we won our election. And then the next step throughout that was to uh, basically talk amongst what we called our committee. Uh, it was just a group of volunteers who wanted to be very involved with um, how we went about things um, and decision, collective decision-making. So the committee then started talking about negotiations. Uh we sent out a survey monkey (laughs) to everyone (laughs) that was like basically just trying to feel out what people's priorities were. What would they like to see in the contract? Um how do you how tired do you feel at work? How how is your mental health at work? You know, trying to just again get a feel for what people really wanted to fight for. Um, And it turned out our number one uh, fight was for just cause. Everyone said that was the number one issue for them. I think a close second place was sick days. Um, yeah. a, and then a third place was sexual harassment at the workplace, specifically um, with customers. The majority of our baristas are women. Um, and so this this is a lot of the reason why, you know, it was pushed to the forefront of the discussion because when asked, what would you like to be solved? Um, almost everyone, including a lot of our male baristas, where like the sexual harassment is just rampant. Um, you're in a position that our society sees as subservient, and people will take advantage of that. You can't, a lot of times, uh, can't stand up for yourself. It's not welcome to stand up for yourself because management is interested in making a profit and. That means basically appeasing most of the customers unless they're just being ridiculously absurd. Um, And that is not in the interest of protecting, protecting workers' dignity and autonomy. So the wonderful thing about this, when we unionized, it enabled people or made them feel enabled to stick up for themselves more frequently at the workplace because they weren't afraid anymore of a manager being like, you can't say that to a customer or you can't do this. uh, because they're like, well, this person was being inappropriate. And I thought that I needed to say something and I just stood up for myself because before our unionization, the, the rhetoric was, Oh, I feel like management lets me protect myself. Management lets me do this and do that. Um, Basically, we're just stepping right over that. We don't need management to give us permission to stick up for ourselves. And when it comes to a customer, we're reclaiming our right to our bodies and our safety and our space. So that you don't even have to, like, go to management and be like, hey, like, can I do this when a customer says this? No, you don't need that permission. You're an adult. You get to decide what's best for you. And um, the union really helped people feel protected when they do that and empowered to be able to make those split decisions on the floor.
1: Yeah. And we're hearing a lot. Like, we're now sharing about, like, problem customers, like, from, like, across stores, which is really great. Um, because again, like it's, even though we do have a sexual harassment policy, that doesn't mean that, you know, workers aren't in, feel safe, you know, going up to management and and solving this problem. We have each other's backs on the floor. That's what's most important. Mm -hmm. One of the, um, initiatives that one of my coworkers just started, um, Mm -hmm. this is surrounding our break issues. Um, we... Have a really hard time taking breaks. Now we are federally and contractually protected to take our 30 minute break. Um, our contract also gives us a 15 minute break in addition to a 30 minute break and as many five minute breaks as we'd like. We cannot be disciplined for taking breaks and we should not feel bad about taking breaks. That's the problem here is that our, we feel bad leaving our coworker on the floor alone. Um, with a line of customers, you know, but that line has been there for practically our whole shift and we have not taken a break yet. Right now my coworker has started a hashtag 30-minute break fast sure. or breakfast, <laughs> emphasizing the break and breakfast, um, and is sharing pictures. We're starting to share pictures of our breakfast during our break and hopefully more baristas will you know, hop onto this mm-hmm. and, um, celebrate taking their 30 minute breaks. It's really about taking care of ourselves now and, and, and taking our breaks. <laughs> so that's an exciting new initiative we're starting.
0: That's awesome. I think everybody needs to be hashtagging. But, uh, <laughs> what is it? Take your breakfast or what?
1: Yeah. So 30 minute, breakfast and you capitalize the break part in breakfast
0: yes 30 minute breakfast I, I
1: believe all i mean in our state if you you are federally pre- Protected in terms of taking a thirty minute break yeah. for a shift longer than four hours.
2: Yeah, we're not. Yeah, we're not sure in terms of like state to state what the law is, but in New York, yeah, a thirty minute break for a shift that is six hours or more is guaranteed, mm-hmm. and you cannot technically can't be fired for it. <laughs> um, of course, that happens. Um, but now that we have the union and everybody is like equipped with a whistle to blow whenever something bad happens. People are starting to take their breaks now and also starting to stick up for each other again. Like what Sam said, if a customer gets upset because something's taking too long, <laughs> you're like, you know what? Like my, my friend is taking their break because they haven't sat down for four hours. Like you need to chill.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: um, and it's management's problem mm. if they want to appease the customer's at that point because we're doing technically what we have to do we're doing our job we're still making the drinks we're still being courteous now we've put you know the ball back in management's court being like well if you don't want to keep hearing the complaints then you need to put like an extra triple on or elongate the triple shift you know it's it's not uh, really fun
0: <laughs> okay going back to the timeline um <laughs> just us to uh uh, I want to hear more about the, um, like, the planning stage. Did you have a lot of meetings with co-workers? Were you, like, were you talking off the clock a lot or having meetings in your homes? Or was it mostly done on the floor? And is that allowed?
1: Yes, we are protected in terms of of talking about uh, working conditions at work. Um, but we did have meetings weekly um, at the worker center um every every Wednesday and then we'd have a little social <laughs> gathering after that to just relax and you know yeah
2: called uh, sorry (laughs) i didn't mean no please no i'm just really excited um Mm -hmm. by the fact that so when we were like what bar should we go to to chillax after talking about like (laughs) negotiating which is a very stressful part of unionizing um we decided to go to a place called the watershed which just a shout out to them is the only a place or, like, a hospitality place in Tompkins County that pays their workers a living wage, like, flat out, and then they still get tips. So the bartenders there are amazing. The owner's awesome. So we would do Watershed Wednesday every Wednesday after meeting about the union.
0: Do you think a living wage is, like, $15 an hour? Mm -hmm. Like, what is that for you?
1: Yeah, in our county, that's what the workers' center...
2: Or, well, it's going to go up. Sorry, (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I think 1511 right now is what the Worker Center is advocating for, In mm-hmm. right? Is that mm-hmm. what it is?
2: Yeah, because so if they can come up with an average of what you earn per hour in tips, they can say that you do earn a living wage, but then they're still not legally obligated to pay you a living wage, or um, even they can still pay you under minimum wage. There's a lot of law about um what an employer can pay a service worker um under minimum wage as long as the tips are breaking even right um yeah which is gross. And, yeah
0: how, what was negotiations like and how did that change your relationship with your father oh i mean your manager sorry <laughs> uh-huh.
2: um So, uh, yeah, both Sam and I, we did negotiations, although, um, Sam made, I think, the great decision to stop going because it, it really was, um, an exhausting, uh, part of this process. I went to negotiations every Friday because I don't, I think I just like to argue with people, um, and (laughs) that's really what it is, um, but negotiations, I mean if it wasn't clear where people's allegiances already were it made it clear um and it was very important for all of us in order to keep our sanity to remember that you know this isn't personal so it was it was i think it was a wake up call for a lot of people to actually see those discussions happening and being a part of those discussions um and like when we talked about that paternalistic relationship um it really opened a lot of, it opened a lot of people's eyes to the truth of that because it is a nice idea it does sound nice when you say we're a family blee blee blee, blee blah um, mm-hmm. but the reality is that families can be incredibly toxic and that we we have been um conditioned to set our relationship standards in a way that praises a paternalistic or a hierarchical family structure.
0: So did you go... Were were there negotiations every Friday (laughs) from May 31st until February... What was it, 9th or something?
1: Yep.
0: Pretty (laughs) much (laughs) much (laughs) every...
1: Yeah, there were a couple Fridays that were off and Mm -hmm. holidays and stuff. but Yeah, it was, again, like... Wow. A lot of dedication. Um, I... I'm so grateful for my coworkers who 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 did that <laughs> had the courage.
0: Well, this episode has been amazing. I really appreciate you two taking the time out to to talk about your feelings and what the process was like. Um what are some resources? I have a few as well. What are some resources that you can um give out to people who have listened to this episode and are like I need to learn about more.
1: (laughs) Okay. So, totally. Corbin and I and another barista, we are going to the Labor Notes conference. um, That's happening uh, April 6th through the 8th in Chicago. Um, And I want to uh, encourage people to go to the Labor Notes website and buy the book um, Secrets of a Successful Organizer. And Labor Notes in general is an incredible uh, resource. Um, That's my plug. That book has been the Bible for me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I would put on top of that, um, if you have a local worker center, go check them out. Mm. Um, Ours, you know, is really great. Um, They have all sorts of information in terms of what your rights are as a worker. Um, They can hopefully put you in contact with other activists in your community and you can talk about all of the different intersections um between yourself and maybe your local LGBTQ center or your mental health center, um, you know, culture centers. Um, and that's my plug. So go to your worker center if you have one. (laughs) Yeah,
1: and I think there again, there's a there's a fear in talking to your coworkers. You may think like what I've learned through this process is that there's no such thing as apathy. You can always find something that a coworker cares about at work, and that's where you start. You just you look out and 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 beside you, and your coworkers are the answer <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: and my plug is the Democratic Socialists of America, which have chapters um pretty much all over the country and um they are active and willing to help you organize they're also everyone's volunteer um and but they do real huge work and i have received like a lot of really great um handouts like organizing 101 102 103 mm-hmm. to the point of where you can like structure your union and keep it mm-hmm. uh, yes. keep it moving for a long time, and I think it's important for us to acknowledge that starting and maintaining a union is very time consuming, and mm-hmm. it's it requires people to make a lot of sacrifices. That's not to say to discourage anyone at all. It's more to say like you have so much at stake at work, and career wise, especially we're such like a young industry. So many of us are millennials that are working in it. We have a lot of stake going forward because as we know, what our salaries are now determine what our salaries will be in like 20, 30 years. And I'm sure we're all terrified of retiring or, you know, Mm -hmm. not having housing. And so this is a good place to like funnel that anxiety.
1: (laughs) Totally. And I just want to add to that, like, it's easy to quit and to go find another job, but guess what? At your next job, you're going to find the same issues. Um, So for me, I've made it, you know, I'm dedicated to staying where I'm at and changing Mm -hmm. this, you know, changing it.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, we would encourage if it is safe to stay at your workplace, if, if you genuinely like know that, like, I mean, obviously if there's extreme abuse going on, you should leave, but If it's like you've had enough, it's the last straw, we encourage you to stay and organize instead Um, because that is really where the solution is. It requires a lot of heavy lifting, but um, I, I firmly believe that that is the way to rehabilitate our economy and to reclaim it is within our generation um, and let's do it.
0: Well, thank you so much, Samantha and Corbin for Mm -hmm. talking with me. This has been amazing. I feel like we all have so much to learn from you. Um, So would each one of you want to give your like social media handles or email if people feel compelled to reach out to you? Sure.
2: Oh yeah. Yes. (laughs) Uh, First of all, so, um, we'll plug first our actual union Instagram. (laughs) Um, it is unionistas2833. Uh, the reason it's 2833 is that is our local union number. So we're technically local 2833. Um, but that is an Instagram that represents like the entire bargaining unit. Um, if people would like to contact me and that is Corbin cause I know Sam and my voice are kind of similar. Um, uh, you can go to my Instagram, uh, which is Corbin K O R B I N recall R A K K O L E, Um, and Oh gosh, do I want to, I'll give my email. That's <laughs> chill. <laughs> you don't also, have to if you don't want to. No, I mean, this is what I'm doing with my time. And I, I, I you know, I took the plunge when I left Gimme and I was like, you know what, let's do this. Uh, so, my email is corbin.richards at gmail.com. Um, and I am ready and willing to answer any and all questions and help people organize. And that's what I'm doing.
1: Yes, yes. And my email is Sam Cobam, S A M C O B A M, at gmail.com. Please reach out to me.
0: Thank you so much. I I really appreciate talking with you. And uh, hopefully we can stay in contact and keep building this movement because what you're doing here is uh, very, very important.
1: Thank you so much for having
2: us. Yeah, thank you.
0: Of course. Well, this has been another episode of Boss Barista. You know where to find us. Uh, Email us at uh, podcast at gmail.com and you know the instagram and twitter stuff and if you don't listen to another episode because this one's long enough okay bye everyone <laughs> bye,
2: bye. <gasps>